Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girl Bomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self care. So, to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you. And treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Welcome back to Counterpoints. I'm Ryan Grimm here with Emily Jashinsky. Emily, how you doing? Great. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Counterpoints Wednesday. Let's there make that go. a thing. All right. So to, to, we got a lot to talk about today. We've got uh, the Fed is going to continue to jack up interest rates, continue to drive up unemployment, according to Elizabeth Warren. We're going to talk about the confrontation between her and Chairman Jay Powell. We're going to talk about the battle between the Biden administration and House Republicans mm-hmm. over the future of Medicare and tax policy. We're going to talk about the new Dominion documents that are out. Uh, also, the uh, latest on the, the Tucker Carlson controversy. I right. guess we could just call it that. And your showdown with Karine Jean-Pierre in the White Karine House. Karine Jean-Pierre. And also, uh, later today, uh, there will be a vote on the House floor by uh, on a war powers resolution sponsored by Representative Matt Gates and also backed by the Congressional Progressive Caucus to force Biden to end the occupation of Syria, the roughly 1,000 troops that are still there. We'll talk about that as well. But we wanted to start the show because uh, we were lucky enough to get uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch in for an interview. uh, We we talked to him uh, about both his reporting on the Nord Stream Pipeline and also his latest piece out today on his 50-year relationship with Dan Ellsberg, who recently announced that... uh, he has a terrible form of pancreatic cancer and has very little time uh, left to live. So we're going to start with uh, this interview. We're joined now by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist uh, Seymour Hirsch, who is out with a new piece uh, on his substack called My 50 Years uh, with Dan Ellsberg. Also joining us to talk about his reporting on the Nord Stream Pipeline. Uh, Seymour Hirsch, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, glad to be there, you guys. Right, and so I, I wanted to I wanted to start by asking you uh, what what you thought of the this new reporting uh, from the New York Times, and then also from the the German press, which in in some ways su- supports what you had 
uh, reported about the uh, Nord Stream pipeline and in other ways uh, con contradicts it. But first off, let's start with with the sourcing. As a as a journalist, when you looked at the the New York Times report, uh, what, what what jumped out to you about it? Well, first of all, my secret thought always has been it was Somalia. I think Somalia, and then I learned it was on the Indian Ocean. So I now make it ne Nepal. Well, what, what, what am I supposed to think about it? It doesn't, you know, Ryan and Emily, it doesn't matter what I think. I mean, the, it, it's, it's either a story or it's not a story. And uh, in the first place, the thing I'm accused of is not naming sources. And of course, I noticed both the story in the um, New York Times and the Washington Post this morning. I still get the papers in print. I like to see a paper. Um, both had no sources in it either. And when I worked for the New York Times for what, seven, seven years during Watergate in Vietnam, I was hired to do Vietnam. I was actually working at the New Yorker and left the New Yorker to go work at the New York Times because at that point in 72, it was a straight newspaper. In other words, there were guys in Saigon, uh, um, uh, Homer Biggert and Dave Halberstam and Neil Sheehan who were doing great reporting. And the Washington Bureau was, as it always was in those days, very pro-president and, you know, and the government. And I was hired to go make whoopee there by Abe Rosenthal. And at that time, um, uh, it was a different newspaper. I, I just, you know, I wrote maybe a thousand stories in seven years, including stuff, really important stories about Chile and the CIA and NSA. And 99% uh, of them had no sources, but they all, you know, they trusted me. Um, even when I wrote a story about domestic spying that I didn't tell the editors about on Friday, and I wrote 7,000 words that day and was in the paper Sunday with banner headlines and nobody, seven unnamed sources. And one editor asked me a question. When, so it's, a, it's just a silly thing to decide that because I don't name sources or I don't put anybody in a meeting, which is the critical thing not to do, um, that it doesn't exist. That's just an excuse. And so, um, just in, you know, the New York Times has a lot of very good reporters on it. And I've, you know, and uh, ditto for the Washington Post. My argument has always been since I left the newspaper business and I saw who got promoted and who did not, I'm convinced that if we got rid of 90% of the editors, uh, we'd be much better off. Do you get the sense that your reporting? shook the tree loose, to borrow a phrase that Ryan used earlier, on the rest of these stories that are now coming out, where it seems that people in the intelligence community are either putting forward information that, in some sense, could fit into um, your reporting or, in other sense, could not. But do you get the sense, though, that some of these people are coming forward um, because your report really did shake the tree loose? Well, not here. Not here in terms of the major media or, the, or even seeing, you know, I think we're talking about post-Trump and post-Trump really changed the media landscape. You were Fox, you were either Fox or CNN and MSBC and you were either the New York Post and other uh, papers like that, um, that conservative, or you were with the New York Times and Washington Post. And so um, um, the, the papers just fell that way. And so when I come up with a story that's very anti-Biden, look, uh, what's going on now in this White House is terrifying to me. Um, they, I don't know if anybody's paid attention with the, with the uh, um, uh, I think the prime minister of China, the number two guy in China has been saying that they're writing us off. They've had it with our snotty comments and canceling meetings because of a balloon. 
you know, a secretary of state canceling a meeting with his counterpart because of a balloon and publicly doing it and pointing his finger in a public meeting at a senior Chinese official. I can tell you, I know, I know Americans who have taken, who have Chinese descent in the government, who have taken diplomats abroad, serious guys. And one thing you do is you never do what, what Tony Blinken did at, um, uh, in, when he was in China, pointing a finger in public to his counterpart. You just don't do that. And so these guys, I don't know what, uh, 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 Blinken and Sullivan and Newland, I call them Lincoln, Blinken and Nod. If you've ever had kids, you know what I'm talking about, the children's story. They're just out of their league here. I, I, they may have wonderful degrees in diplomas and experience, they're just out of their league. Do they really want to get into a, a NATO war? And there's no question, we've been increasing the amount of American troops uh, in Poland secretly and deploying much more force many more arms up in that area. Um, obviously with the idea, uh, I would guess that the president may authorize or they may push for NATO actually to make a physical presence. It's gonna be over in Ukraine. It's just a question of when Putin pulls it, whether you like Putin or don't like Putin. I, I, how can you like a guy that started the most the bloodiest war uh, in, in, in uh, Western Europe since World War II? We had the Balkans and Chesna, but this is something else. So you have to fault him for that. But it isn't without some reason, or at least some provocation. We expanded NATO to the east. Everybody's watching a show and knows what I'm talking about. We also put um, uh, what we call defensive missiles that can be turned overnight in the in, in the missiles that can th throw a nuclear nuclear bombs into uh, into Moscow, 800 miles away, with seven minutes. How far would it take? We've also escalated that, escalated the rhetoric, and. Um, I don't know what the goal is. I don't know if they know what the goal is. Uh, you know, I, I guess historically presidents who have wars do better in elections. I mean, um, that's just a fact uh, that the public rallies around a president. I don't know what's going on in that White House, but it's very scary and very dumb. Mm -hmm. And what they're putting out, then the story they put out yesterday is just another example of idiocy. Mm -hmm. It's not yeah. working. What, what happened here? Well, let me just say this. What happened here with the press blackout didn't happen in the rest of the world. I, 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 it's all over the world. Uh, Joe Biden made a decision to blow up the pipelines because he was afraid that he learned then that there was a stalemate coming at best uh, in or in Ukraine. He wanted more support from Europe, Western Europe and Germany. And historically, since the Kennedy years, uh, American presidents, this is all part of the containment business, the post-World War II Russia containing communism business. Historically, presidents have uh, um, been frightened and worried about the Russian influence because of its uh, huge amounts of uh, natural gas and oil that they were selling in the Europe that always tried to stop it. It's nothing new. So there you are. Uh, we're in a terrible place right now because the crap they put out yesterday isn't going to work. I, nobody's going to believe, nobody's going to believe that. What, their Zeitz said some guys in a yacht dropped it? We're talking about C4 with enough C4 to blow up a major building in Washington or, or New York even uh, for each of the pipelines. Just go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, you, you alluded earlier to some of the criticism uh, that, that was coming at your story uh, around, you know, not not naming the, the the key source that it was based on. Are you are you working on any any? follow-ups along this and are, are you picking up dissent within the administration should we should we look for any ad additional reporting or are you hoping that the 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 press more generally picks this up and follows it 
I'm hoping that the, the major press is going to pick this up and follow it. <laughs> I, I've had, from the day I wrote Me Lie, <laughs> I've, I've, had, I've had people for months say it can't be true. Uh, and when I wrote the story, what was this? I mentioned the one about domestic spying, and I said the CIA had been spying on, on literally hundreds of thousands of American anti-war citizens and reporters and congresspeople. And the Washington Post for three months every other week, my good friend Larry Stern, I adored him, who was their senior, one of their senior editors and reporters, was writing the stories. I mean, a buddy of mine saying, Hirsch is dead wrong, it was the FBI. And then, of course, uh, to his credit, uh, uh, Bill Colby, the head of the CIA at a hearing told the truth. He said, yeah, there's something to it. Uh, um, but anyway, the bottom line is, uh, no, I'm not hoping for the American press to do anything. Uh, the, the only thing that's going to happen is in Europe, uh, uh, you know, here, here's what the president did, as far as I can tell. And by the way, I've been writing every Wednesday for on my Substack, and I wrote, one of the pieces I wrote was all about Norway. If you remember, um, uh, mm -hmm. I said that Norway was involved. I wrote a piece about how Norway worked with us Early in the Vietnam War, we were we were going and provoking stuff in in, 60, in 1964, before North Vietnam even got into the war. We were uh, seals were working on Norwegian Norwegian boats, um, advanced PT boats, a large larger PP boats than the one that Kennedy was in in World War II. They were going in deep, and they were driving up into the, on the coast of North Vietnam, dropping seals off. We were going in, gutsy guys. And blowing, trying to blow up radar sites and military sites. And two of the guys even got wounded badly and crawled back and made it back and, and got medals of honor in secrecy. I wrote a piece about that a couple of weeks later, making the point that it's not unusual. We have a history of working with Norway. I actually have a photograph of Bill, Cos Bill Colby, who is a, um, a lot of these guys in the CIA. He was in the Office of Spe uh, Special Services, OSS, and he was behind enemy lines in Norway, working with um, um, special forces in Norway. I have photographs of him in 45 and 44, you know, in the middle of winter, doing all kinds of crap against the, uh, the Nazis. I mean, the, the, these guys, uh, Helms and Colby, uh, I, I wrote a lot of bad stories about him. Um, and to their credit, I mean, Col Helms, before he died, uh, he was the head of the CIA for many years and was involved in the, the Castro stuff and a lot of stuff for the president that he couldn't tell the Congress about. He called me in and we had a long talk before he died about what really was going on that I couldn't use. But, um, and, you know, you know, you know, the CIA doesn't work for the Congress or for the Constitution. It works for the crown. It works for the president. Why do you, why does the president keep a CIA around? You got a guy, you know, uh, Obama, uh, even uh, particularly uh, this guy now, Biden, he's not going to get his way in Congress, but he can take a walk in the Rose Garden with the head of the CIA and somebody can be heard 8,000 hurt 8,000 miles away. Feels, that makes you feel pretty good. Hmm. And so that, it's all just, we're in a mess. That's all there is to it. And we need a president that's, that has uh, more integrity than this guy does. And uh, not that I, I'm all for his domestic program, but, and, but not, not to go uh, piss on the head of the Chinese and quite as much as he did on Putin. Speaking you of know, that, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, Putin couldn't have started that war uh, three years ago. Mm. Uh, I was in Moscow four or five years ago. Nobody liked him. You had drinks with some businessmen, which I did. I did a lot of, I was doing something interesting there. 
And um, uh, you see somebody in the Politburo, they all, nobody liked the guy. We don't often don't like our presidents, but Moscow was doing trade with um, uh, um, America. Americans were on the street. If they knew you were American, they said, hello, thank you uh, for being our friend. And so by being there and, and, and I don't think he could have sold the war against Ukraine. Ukraine was always seen as a self-culture by Russia. In, in 1932, there was a famine and um, Stalin uh, took all of the wheat from Ukraine and 20, 20 or 22 million Ukrainians starved in, the, in um, 1932 it was. I mean, it's a great mo moment of history, what brutes they were. And always they viewed this, the Ukraines were, but they, but they were also a buffer between them and the rest of Europe. Anyway, what can I tell you? It's just, um, it's, it's, we're in a real crisis. And I don't know why the Post and the Times want to keep on playing the game that everything's going to be okay, maybe in, in Ukraine, and that whatever the White House tells him in briefings is true. And they to that point. Well, excuse me, go ahead. No, I was going to say, to that point about us just being in a mess and a crisis, and maybe to borrow a phrase, a quagmire, um, I wanted to ask about this wonderful piece you have reflecting on your relationship with Daniel Ellsberg. It's up on your Substack right now. You talk about how some reporting that you did in the New York Times uh, led to the establishment of the Senate's Church Committee back in 1975. And one of the interesting things about that is Republicans, for obviously partisan reasons that stem from uh, what I would argue were partisan FISA abuses in the last 10 years, have sought to recreate, let's say, the magic, to recapture the magic of the original church committee. Uh, and it looks like that's just not going to work. It looks like the country is not capable of hosting another church committee because the divisions are are so strong in Congress right now. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that as you've been reflecting, um, not only on your relationship with Ellsberg, but on some of the reporting you were doing at the time. Uh, do you think we're capable of, of recapturing the magic of the church committee or, or of hosting anything like uh, the church committee right now in 2023? You know, that's such a good question because that's exactly what I've been thinking about a lot uh, because the church committee has popped up quite a bit recently as a, sort of a model. It was the first time the CIA was ever investigated. And in the piece I wrote about Ellsberg, it plays a big role uh, with my, my, my relationship with him in a way too. The one thing that came out of the church committee, um, Frank Church was a modern, it was a liberal. Um, it wasn't very popular. Uh, guess what? Like a, like a lot of the guys in the Senate, he got up every morning, looked in the mirror of it and said, why not me? You know, and his ambition was pretty much overbearing. Uh, but he was very bright. And I actually, I, I got to know him obviously very well and his staff. And um, he did, a, the investigation was amazing because one of the recommendations was for the House and Senate to have intelligence committees. And they were taken very seriously. They set up staffs. And in the, particularly in the 70s and 80s, we had people like Ben Bradley, basketball player. He lived down the street around the corner, uh, Ben Bradley, for years when he was in the Senate. And the kids used to play basketball outside. He'd walk by in the morning, on summer mornings. And they would beg him, shoot, take one, take one, you know, take a shot. And he would walk. And finally, he'd turn around and maybe from 30 feet, just jump up and flip it right through the middle. Never missed. Unbelievable, <laughs> what a neighbor. And um, Gary Hart, when they ran those committees, um, madmen like me running around chasing stories, they would only talk to me on the record, which I thought was admirable. They really respected the boundaries and they had meetings and they had intelligence and they had, between the Democrats and Republicans, there was a sense of unity. And just think of that now, think mm -hmm. how it's been destroyed. We've seen the last years uh, with, uh, in the, particularly in the House Committee with Adam Schiff on one side and the Republicans on the other side screaming and yelling about everything. 
There's no, there's no comedy anymore. There's no need. The committees are useless. Uh, under, the, under the rules that were set up, anytime the special operations are put into effect, there has to be a finding, it has to go to the Congress. There's a secret committee I know about in the, in the, in the House. I don't know how it works in the Senate. There's a secret four-man group off the, uh, in the House Appropriations Subcommittee, one of them. There's a, that meets and with a clerk and they monitor and they take records. Can you, can you believe that this White House had something they wanted to do, like blowing up a pipeline? Would they brief it to Speaker McCarthy? Are you kidding? And by the way, terms when I was dealing with Vietnam in the 70s at the New York Times and writing a lot then, um, um, the, the Democrats were supporting getting out of the war along with many Republicans. Um, there were a dozen moderate centrist Republicans. The War Powers Act of 1973 that, that forbid any more troops to be on the ground or air, even air in the war, was written by a moderate Republican and, uh, and his staff. And um, uh, now uh, it's such a, can you imagine Chuck Sumer now, speaker that runs the Senate, calling for an investigation of this, of a Democratic president? Not a chance. And in the House, the, which has now Republicans in control, they're much more interested in chasing Hunter, Hunter Biden and, and than they are investigating anything seriously. I, I just don't imagine why. Um, this guy, Jordan, I, I watched him in, in a hearing on financial matters. He actually does his homework. Why somebody isn't, even on the Republican side, doesn't seem to want to jump on this. Uh, so there you are. We're in a quagmire. <laughs> We're in a mess. <laughs> and, and, and this White House is making it worse. Well, I encourage everybody to read the, read, uh, the latest piece, My 50 Years with Dan Ellsberg, as well as, of course, the, all the previous reporting. Now, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We have an update uh, from Germany on the pipeline explosion over the Nord Stream. So uh, if, we, if we could put this first element up. So a coalition of German papers, and you can just go ahead, go, you can Google this and just click English on the translation. <laughs> it's, it's so nice. This, the, like, we, we have to acknowledge the things that have gotten better. Uh, you, that you can now just read German papers. It's not going to be perfect, but you're gonna you're gonna very much get the gist of it. And so let's start connecting some dots here. So you, the other day you have the New York Times come out with its extraordinarily thinly sourced <laughs> article that says we don't really know anything, and we can't say how we know anything, but we definitely know that there were no Americans or British, which is also quite specific. Yes. <laughs> no Americans or British who participated in this pipeline bombing, but there's new intelligence, which leads us to a pro-Ukrainian group. Now, there were zero details. The German press is out with what appear to be a bunch of the details that the U.S. Security Service were, is, were referring to uh, when, they, when, they came, when they said, we have new intelligence. It seems like this is what they're talking about it. Would you say that that is a fair two dots to connect? That was absolutely my interpretation of all of it. And remember, this conversation had basically gone away until the Seymour Hirsch story. And mm -hmm. if you're watching this, you probably see Seymour Hirsch down on the lower bar. Um, he is slated to come on the show. We're, we're hoping everything goes yeah. all right with he that. He said, I'm running around this morning. Yeah. I'm going to try to make it. We'll, so we'll, we'll see if he makes it. Yeah. <laughs> TBD. But um, all of this was just cracked wide open. Nobody was talking about this. None of those reports were coming out until the American government was implicated in Hirsch's right. Substack post, basically, which renewed conversation about it. And that's where, again, I think you start seeing these reports from the New York Times, reports from the German press. It seems right. like that created the momentum to get the intelligence community to respond. Right. And so 
where the New York Times article was lacking in details, the, the German press is kind of overflowing in details. Mm. And so we could, we could read out a couple of fun ones. Uh, so first of all, they said that it's, so it's a, it was allegedly a yacht rented from a company based in Poland owned by two Ukrainians. <laughs> so that's their, that's their first clue that they say is pointing to uh, the, you know, a pro-Ukrainian group. Uh, they say it, there were six people, uh, five men and one woman. Mm. Now we're talking like a, a rather incredible level of detail. Very specific. Uh, Not just it wasn't us. <laughs> right. But al although carefully read each one of these articles for overlap between CIA, U.S. involvement and what they're saying. So, so far, none of this actually contradicts it. Could the CIA or some other uh, U.S. You know, security apparatus rent a yacht mm -hmm. uh, from a Polish company that's owned by two Ukrainians? Like, absolutely. Does the CIA have access to five men and one woman? <laughs> yes. <laughs> presumably. Like, presu presumably. <laughs> they could do this. We've seen their videos. Yeah, they're, they're all recruiting. about diversity. So they, they, yeah, certainly, they certainly have women who can do, do, do diving. Uh, they said one of, the, one of the six was a doctor. CIA has doctors, for sure. Uh, no, but more seriously, uh, they say that the, the equipment for the secret operation was transported to the port in a delivery truck. So, again, like more specifics, like we don't, they don't, they don't have much about the sourcing here. They're sourcing it back to kind of German investigators, mm -hmm. but that level of detail is interesting. I mean, how else are the explosives going to get there other than a truck? So right. you, perhaps that's just deduction. Like, I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to have a drone fly them over and drop them into the yacht. Like right. otherwise, you're not going to have a wheelbarrow either, probably, right? So, <laughs> probably. Truck. So uh, the yacht was then returned to the owner in an unclean condition. Some more details here. Investigators found traces of explosives on the table in the cabin. Now, some uh, German observers have raised the possibility of, that some of this was done to kind of bait people into thinking that this, you know, to throw breadcrumbs in a different direction. Yeah. Because, like, if it's the CIA, you know, they, they probably either know how to clean up the explosives mm -hmm. uh, or if that's difficult, they just sink the boat. Like, they, you know, or they blow it up. Like, they don't, you know, they don't. They don't really, they're not, they're not that concerned about getting their deposit back on the rented yacht. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's not the, the top 10, you know, mission list they I, can action item. They can shake the piggy bank over at the Pentagon. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Figure that one out. As Kramer says, that's a write-off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just a write-off. Uh, and so, it, interestingly, you know, some of this obviously conflicts with what Seymour Hirsch uh, reported. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of it could align with it. And it, it is interesting. It does seem like Hirsch's reporting kind of shook the trees yes. and got some of this out. Yeah, absolutely. And this creates, I think, new conversations between, well, I, I'm curious, and maybe if we back up a bit, how do you think Putin is going to start responding, if he does start responding, to this reporting? So interestingly, you know, Putin's claim was never that it was Ukraine that did this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Putin can say whatever he wants. He could, like, he, he can say whatever he thinks is most advantageous to him. Uh, the, the Russians were blaming British operatives. Mm -hmm. uh, and Hirsch's article said, no, it was actually, actually the U.S. Uh, to, to, ha to have Ukraine, to alleged kind of pro-Ukrainian group involvement in this, I think it makes it for very interesting politics, particularly in Germany. Because if all of a sudden you have a German public that says, wait a minute, so we're paying these high electricity prices, mm -hmm. high energy prices, because the Ukrainians blew up the pipeline right. that we had been invested in building for all of these years. 
so that they would force us to then continue you know, cooperating with their defense of the Russian invasion. You, you know, if, if this catches hold in Germany and, and, if it, and if it becomes kind of a settled fact that it was actually this pro-Ukrainian group, although the CIA could also be described as a pro-Ukrainian group, right? <laughs> uh, then, uh, then yeah, that, that I think plays into the geopolitics and, and could sour, uh, you know, European public opinion on, on support for this war. So the fact that the U.S., uh, by leaking this to the New York Times and the German uh, German investigators, you know, uh, p- playing with the, the German press in this way suggests they're kind of really playing with public opinion fire a little bit. And somebody brought that information to Hirsch as well. So right. at, at some point, yeah, public information fire, yeah, that's absolutely what's happening here. So I think you're right. This is a huge development. And again, this is from German public prosecutors. Um, it's, it's a huge development geopolitically. So... Yeah. It's you can't really understate um, what we're learning day to day on this massively expensive right. pipeline that was yeah. I was gonna say that was geopolitically important for years before the war mm-hmm. even broke out and still is and so latest update of the AP reporting this morning Germany's defense minister voiced caution Wednesday over media reports that a pro-Ukraine group was involved in blowing up the Nord Stream gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea last year so it, you're running into one of these situations again where. You have some elements of the, the German investigators kind of leaking yeah. information. Then you have official elements saying, well, 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 let's let's be cautious. We don't actually, you know, our investigation, you know, re- remains incomplete. And so that you wind up with the public just kind of sorting into its own groups of, of who, who and what they're going to believe. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the case for decades to come. I don't think anyone's ever going to get to the, the real fact here. I don't think you know you can make educated guesses based on the reporting that continues to come out. And by the way, I expect this information will continue to kind of drip out over the course of like when people start writing books about right. the war in Ukraine. It's like the details we get to CIA's behavior during the Cold War that either come out during a uh, you know, church committee hearing or are fleshed out in someone's really well-reported book. I don't think we're ever going to know. I mean, uh, some diver wants f- some diver wants to write that memoir, right? They want the credit, yeah. yeah. Um, in the near future, I don't expect we'll have any confirmation from anybody's government um, or anybody involved about what actually factually happened. Right. And so, uh, mo- moving on, the big the big economic news uh, came out of the Federal Reserve yesterday. If we can put up uh, a a one here, this is uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell saying that he's actually going to be ramping up interest rate increases much more uh, significantly than he had planned in the past. He he came to Congress yesterday and was grilled uh, by Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren on what the implications would be for unemployment. Let's roll Warren here. Chair Powell, if you hit your projections, do you know how many people who are currently working, going about their lives, will lose their jobs? I don't... Uh... I don't have that number in front of me. I will say it's, it's not, it's it's not an intended consequence. It's well, not, but it is, and it's in your report, and that would be about 2 million people who would lose their jobs, people who are working right now making their mortgages. So, Chair Powell, if you could speak directly to the 2 million hardworking people who have decent jobs today, who you're planning to get fired over the next year, what would you say to them? How would you explain your view that they need to lose their jobs? I would explain to people more broadly that, that inflation is extremely high, and it's hurting the working people of this country badly, all of them not just 2 million of them, but all of them are suffering under high inflation. And we are taking the the only measures we have to bring inflation down. And putting 2 million people out of work is just part of the cost. Let me ask you about what happens if you do this. Since the end of World War II, there have been 12 times in which the unemployment rate has increased by one percentage point within one year, exactly what you're aiming to do right now. How many of those times did the U.S. economy avoid falling into a recession? 
you know, it's it's not as black and white as it, very. Just very looking at the numbers, it actually yeah, is no, no. pretty black. Alan Blaine has written a book on this. And, there have and, been twelve times that we've seen a one point increase in the unemployment in the unemployment rate in a year. That's exactly what your Fed report has put out as the projection and the plan based on how you're going to keep raising these interest rates. How many times did the economy fail to fall into a recession after doing that? Out of twelve times, I think the number is zero. I think the number is zero. That's exactly right. What I like about this is that it's a clash of of real conflicting values. That That's a good point. On the one hand, Elizabeth Warren talking about the millions, you know, two million unemployed people that Powell's policy will produce. Like that's, not only is that two million people who are, who are now paying, able to pay their bills, you know, finding dignity in their work that no longer can and no longer do, but then you then, you know, push fear all the way through the workforce and you discipline the workforce and, and a militant worker who might want to have wanted to organize the, you know, into a union or push for a raise or push back against sexual harassment or other abuse in, in the workplace. Now all of a sudden, hmm, I'm not going to be able to get another job if I lose this one. And so everybody's life gets worse versus the other value of prices are rising too fast and that sucks for people. Right. Uh, what, what was your response to that? Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's hard for me to give Elizabeth Warren the moral high ground in that question. And obviously that generally applies to conversations about politicians. But when you're saying, you know, how much, how much spending, for instance, did Elizabeth Warren support that has been making working people's bank accounts bleed because the price of eggs is exploding. And it's not just eggs, of course, it's the entire consumer price index. If you look at your basket of groceries over the last several months, the last year and a half, basically, how much of the spending that contributed to those price hikes has Elizabeth Warren supported? And so part of this is putting everyone between a rock and a hard place, either Jerome Powell and Elizabeth Warren, like both of them between a rock and a hard place, because from Elizabeth Warren's perspective, and sometimes I think correctly, we need to spend more on X, Y, and Z package, but we also know that will contribute in some ways to a rise in inflation. We're nowhere near a hike that looks like Volcker, right? Like we're not exactly back to that time period yet. We're not suffering under anything quite to that point. Hopefully it doesn't get to that, but the point is getting letting inflation get out of control and supporting measures that let inflation get out of control. Um, I don't think gives you the moral high ground then to go to Jerome Powell and say basically you're you're intentionally putting people out of work because that's part of the story. It might be true, but it's part of the story. And to me, the problem here is that it's not necessarily the case that the treatment is going to cure the disease, and and I worry that. 20 years from now, if we have some you know, more sophisticated economic modeling capacity, maybe ChatGPT can uh, do that for us, we'll look back and be like, what were these economists thinking? Like, it, uh, well, I mean, you, you'll have le left-wing uh, economists saying, well, we know what they were thinking. They were serving the interests of the elite. Right. But the ones who were saying, let's, let's pretend and take for granted they're actually trying to kind of manage the economy in the most effective way possible, it's almost as if these are doctors who are bleeding a patient because they have a fever. You know, the mm -hmm. way that George Washington had like eight different doctors, you know, that, that, that each individually bled him. <laughs> and, and they would, and then because you would have some people who recovered after they were bled, right. you had the medical profession be like, well, you know, bleeding actually works. Look here, this, this happens. And, and so the question then becomes, how does kind of raising the unemployment rate uh, affect prices if prices are either related to, you know, ecological or uh, virological yeah. uh, crises or to corporate greed. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there have been reports mm -hmm. out 
that up to 50% of the price increases that we've seen have, have come from corporations who have opportunistically raised prices and didn't have to because wholesale prices were rising. So that's half. We also note, if you, t- as, and, uh, you, know, you mentioned the eggs, well, the bird, bird flu has wiped out like millions, approaching billions of birds around the world, and there's no interest rate move. And, th- and I think that makes us kind of sad as humans, as economists, because we want to be able to control everything. We want to think, well, if we, if we uh, you know, do something about our quantitative easing policy, yeah. then we're We'll not- prevent the avian flu. <laughs> then, then avian, avian flu. With, with 75% yeah. confidence, we can predict that the avian yeah. flu will be yeah. mitigated by our yeah. interest rate measures. That's right. I think, I think some pro-Iranian militias launched some strike on a, on a chicken farm in Syria, like may, maybe that'll do it. You know? <laughs> maybe that'll do something about bird flu. That, that happened pretty recently. But so, and, this, and the same is true when it comes to kind of ecological crises, that if, that if the planet is not able just to function in the way that it does at, the, at this carbon concentration for this eight, eight, nine billion people, as it was for six billion people at lower carbon concentrations, what does that do to our economic models? And what, you know, how does moving the interest rate and moving the unemployment rate actually help there? Well, yeah, and that's, there's the two million number, which he didn't even have off the top of his head. I think that was a pretty bad look, first and foremost, that it was in his own report, as Elizabeth Warren pointed out, and Jerome Powell couldn't mention. Um, Maybe he didn't want to say the number, but it seemed like perhaps he was just entirely ignorant of it, which I think is telling in and of itself, because it treats people, or or it contributes this idea that the, the mentality among people sitting at the Fed is that people are numbers, and numbers can be massaged, and we can take care of this with a formula, um, which may or may not be the case for everybody over at the Fed, but when you don't have that number from your own report um, and you're unwilling to say it, then yeah, that's a problem. So, But the the question then also, I think, becomes what does all of this do to wages? What does all of that do to uh, corporate profits? To your point, I think that's one area where the right has totally missed an opportunity over the course of the last year. There is good reporting on how corporate greed has contributed to all of that, and obviously Elizabeth Warren um, would be on the right side of that conversation, but I mean, the, their their models can't really account right. for a lot of that stuff. Right, and, and just to underline the point about worker power, you'll of, you often see a lot of people who will say, well, look, I'm sorry that one or two million people are going to lose their job, but 330 million people are suffering through higher prices. Yeah. But the reason that unemployment drives down wages is because it spreads fear throughout the entire economy. Like, they're not, they're not just going to, you know, fire these one or two million people and then magically wages go down and, and prices go down. It's because they're firing those people as a warning to you. So mm-hmm. every single person in the workforce and every single person who depends on someone in the workforce, which almost gets to 300 some million people, is actually going to suffer from high, higher unemployment rates. So I think, and, and, I, and perhaps we've had low unemployment now for so long that people forget what that, what that fear and what that pain is like. And, yeah. and they might regret uh, getting what they asked for. Yeah, and there's not going to be some sort of like patriotic hug from corporate America to workers as a reaction to right. the organizing, which ha- like the numbers on the increase in organizing over year to year have been really, really like staggering uh, jumps yes. in organizing. And that, is so, a, exa- and that is a direct consequence of full unemployment. And that goes away when you lose full unemployment, which is why somebody like Jerome Powell would like to see the numbers go up a little bit. And like he's not wrong that there are trade-offs. And I think Elizabeth Warren is maybe 
glossing over that for the sake of asking those questions in a, a way, in a, in a very particular way. Um, but to your point, yeah, there's a, <laughs> there are, there's a, a broader aperture to make those trade-offs with them. Yeah. And spe speaking of trade-offs, let's put up uh, B1 here. Uh, Joe, Joe Biden has put forward his plan uh, both for deficit reduction and for shoring up Medicare, challenging Republicans to come up with their own plan. Uh, this, this flows from that uh, kind of iconic moment in his State of the Union uh, where uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others were saying, you're a liar, <laughs> we don't want to cut Medicare and Social Security. And Biden kind of paused the conversation and said, okay, so let me, let me make sure everybody's on board here. So what you're saying is cuts to Social Security and Medicare are off the table. And they all said, are off the table. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, okay, so here's how we're, I'm going to sure up Medicare. And basically he has two, he has, uh, two planks. Right. Very simple. One, he's going to allow Medicare to further negotiate drug prices, save some $200 billion over 10 years, and all of that money goes to the Medicare trust fund to, to extend it. Uh, and then secondly, uh, the ACA put in, and if you're rich, you know this and you're angry about it, a <laughs> uh, 3.8% kind of basically investment tax over uh, over $400,000. If you, if you make more than $400,000 a year, you pay this 3.8% hit. Uh, and he wants to raise that from 3.8 to 5%. Now, when they initially passed this 3.8% thing, it was one of the most significant kind of class war things that was actually in the ACA, and it became the thing that Republicans worked to repeal you know, incessantly and, and actually failed, said that the sky was going to fall, the markets are going to tank, like, you're, you know, we're not going to have... Uh, we're not going to have a free market. Like, kind of free people will cease to exist because of this 3.8 percent uh, little fee that you're that you're tacking on top of people making $400,000 on their investments. Here we are. Most people don't even know it exists. Markets have you know done fine and not done fine, but it doesn't seem to have anything to do with that. So these are his two plans. This is it. The, the rich pay a little bit more, uh, and we're going to negotiate with big pharma. And with that, the Medicare trust fund uh, rolls out to 2050. So now the shoe is on the foot of Republicans. Yeah, exactly. Or the ball is in the court of Republicans, use a better cliche. Sure, it's not a bad place for negotiations to begin, and that's what this looks like. Mm -hmm. It looks like he's using the New York Times op-ed to kick off and say this is point A, and negotiations obviously always are going to go from A to Z, and his starting point here, it's really not bad. You highlighted, and I think we have this element, a Washington Post article on the advisor to Kevin McCarthy, who's formerly an advisor to Newt Gingrich. Mm -hmm. so there are some great quotes from John Boehner in this yeah. article, uh, basically saying, you know, he, he the, this particular advisor... Kevin McCarthy doesn't like to tell people no. This is in the piece. Yeah. Um, but he will. Dan Meyer will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's actually probably uh, accurate. But to your point, Ryan, there's this question about how Republicans can kind of make the math work on their yeah. end I if they the don't. Monopoly money in. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and a lighter. Uh, but <laughs> Republicans could possibly make this math work if they don't want to touch entitlements, mm. period. That's, they've said it's off the table. They don't want to do that if they don't want to, I'm sorry, strengthen entitlements. Strengthen. Yeah. Uh, our favorite euphemism here in CounterPoints, they don't want to strengthen entitlements. How do they make the math work? Now, what was interesting to me about this article is that Russ Vote, the OMB under Donald Trump, has a plan on how 
Republicans can make that math work without touching entitlements. It's a really interesting plan. You can go and read it on the internet. And basically what it does is look for a bunch of fat that can be trimmed bureaucratically around these, these sort of cultural leftist priorities. Some people may call them woke priorities. Um, and he makes the math work that way. He was in charge of the budget during the Trump administration, knows his way around OMB, obviously, as a former head of it. Um, what was interesting to me about the Washington Post article that you just saw on the screen by Jeff Stein basically is that Dan Meyer, I, I can only imagine, is not paying attention to that right. paper. And it, does he run that veterans group now? I'm like, not sure, like A conservative veterans group? Yeah, I'm um, not sure. Which would, which would suggest that maybe he'll uh, check out the Pentagon, look under that hood, see mm -hmm. if there's a couple trillion that could come out of there. Uh, I, I would think that, that Meyer will be looking wherever he can uh, because if he's going to make a good faith effort, which I think that's all he's going to do, is like, and by good faith, I mean Clinton's old phrase where he used to say, I want to get caught trying, mm -hmm. which meant you're actually not going to succeed, but you want to look like you're at least like, look, I'm doing the best that I can just to prove to you that my best is not good enough. Because mm -hmm. like you said, if you're not cutting the Pentagon and if you're not cutting Social Security and Medicare, then there isn't the money out there to do what Republicans want to do. Now, there is the money if you're willing to do what Biden is willing to do, and we can put this other one up there. This came out this morning in the New York Times. This is Biden previewing what his deficit reduction plan is going to be. And it's, an, it's annoying that Biden is focusing on deficit reduction rather than actual you know, investment priorities. But whatever, this is Joe, who Joe <laughs> Biden is, and this is the world we're in. If he's got to do it, I do like the way he's doing it. He suggests basically a wealth tax on everybody making more than $100 million or worth more than $100 million a year, I think it is, rather than making more. Uh, you would, and you, for those people, they have to pay on their asset growth, like in their stock growth. So if you're yeah. Elon Musk and your stock, you know, your, your, the value of your portfolio increased by, you know, 50% in a year, you, know, you have to figure out ways to pay on that. Uh, and so uh, that, that plus some other kind of corporate taxes and, and you know, other, like, basic progressive stuff that just hits the rich and, and major corporations, uh, he ends up uh, reducing the deficit by $2 trillion over like 10 years, which is a big number. And it, which is a number that Republicans, un unless you can think of some way they can do it, just simply can't meet because they're unwilling to raise taxes, unwilling to go after the Pentagon and unwilling to uh, and they, and they have, they, they'd love to go after Medicare and Social Security, but they've taken it off the table. Well, I was going to say, yeah, they, they uh, may be willing to go after the Pentagon. We've seen you know, even the president of the Heritage Foundation at this point uh, calling for things to that yeah. extent. Go um, for it. Go, there's a, there's a real appetite yeah. for going after the Pentagon, at least in the conservative movement, if not in the Republican Party. I think it's basically impossible to take a, even if something the, the president of the Heritage Foundation wants to do, and then when it comes to the Pentagon, push that through in the Republican Party. Um, so yes, I agree with that point. But it's also a matter of what Russ Vote proposes is cutting the size of the federal bureaucracy and not just purely for the uh, making the, the numbers all work out and just balancing, um, balance, getting the balance sheet mm -hmm. in order, but also for the sake of like, well, hey, how did they justify the COVID vaccine mandate? In an obscure provision of the act that established OSHA. Uh, there's, there's some of these things that are very real extra constitutional encroachments on the everyday American's freedom that can be 
pared back and that can make some of this math start to work without touching entitlements and, and maybe with you know minor cuts to the Pentagon or something, something to that extent. I just don't have a lot of faith that that's what's on the table um, as Kevin McCarthy's office um, and, and his advisors are looking to make these balance sheets check out. Meanwhile, Republicans seem to be notching some wins on immigration, and I'm curious how the, the right is viewing this. So th recently, the Biden administration floated basically a trial balloon suggesting, and, and this appears to be coming from Susan Rice, who people might forget bizarrely is running domestic policy for the administration, <laughs> foreign policy expert her entire career, and Biden's like, yeah, you'll well, do domestic policy. She has been one of the most hawkish internally when it comes to you know cracking down on, on the border. Uh, and so it is assumed that that's where this is, that this trial balloon is coming from, saying that the Biden administration is considering returning uh, to family detention. Now, I know how a lot of progressives respond to this. They just kind of want to not think about it because mm -hmm. it's just kind of too painful because it reminds them of all of the things that they said about uh, Trump when he was doing things like this and things they didn't say about Obama, and things they didn't say about Obama and then things that they would be forced to say about Biden if they focused on the issue. So they kind of just keep it moving and hope that maybe nobody presses them on it yeah. and they don't have to think about it. But I'm curious what the reaction among uh, Republicans is, if it's some sense of, of vindication or if there's a, haha, we told you so, or, or this is actually cynical and we don't believe you're going to do it. What's, so how, how, how did Republicans respond to this trial balloon? Yeah, I don't think anybody on the right considers what's been coming out of the Biden administration or anything like this a win. And I'm not saying that because I believe that they're just like heroes. Um, I'm saying that because the numbers I don't think are going to be affected so long as the Biden administration. Child separation is awful and, and one thing, but so, so long as the Biden administration continues its program of humanitarian parole right now, um, and humanitarian parole sounds like a really good thing, what it is basically is passage into the United States if you can turn yourself in at a border crossing. Um, they took these steps basically to say people from certain countries, and this is all over the last couple of months, um, will not be eligible for asylum if they're caught crossing illegally. What that is is like sort of a math trick to get it to look like the illegal crossings are lower while they're granting humanitarian parole to more and more people. It sounds, again, like a great thing. What it does is set people up for this like tragic existence in the shadows of America's civic civil society um, and is going to continue being a poll factor for millions of people coming up through Central America and Mexico. We've talked about this many times before. Everybody pays a cartel to get up there. Um, the cartels then turn around and terrorize these countries, overrun these countries. Many people are sexually assaulted, kidnapped along the journey. So I don't think if you're not going to pair child separation with um, like a real closure of the border so that people don't believe what happens is people, you know, WhatsApp everyone um, down the line back home and say, you have to turn yourself in and you get a court date two years from now. Um, but other than that, you can sort of exist in a sanctuary city, et cetera, et cetera. Even if you don't turn yourself in, um, you can exist in a sanctuary city. So unless it's paired, I think, with, with some really like serious uh, uniform legal policy uh, in terms of what's happening when people do turn themselves in, I don't, I don't even think, that's, that's what's even more sad, is that they would be doing, if they brought this back, which I doubt they will, they would be doing child separation 
with this other inhumane policy. And that is just the worst of both worlds. And maybe it's hard to figure out what's driving uh, these types of decisions coming from this White House, but maybe they're doing that Trump thing where they try to they try to kind of uh, express toughness. Yeah, yeah. And say like, look. I think they are. Like it's it's a deterrent. Like this, it's trying to act as a deterrent to people, even yeah. if they're not going to do it. I think that's totally right, and that is actually an important part of immigration policy. Um, one pastor at a, shel a shelter that I talked to in Matamoros last year said he begs people in the American government to put out a message in plain Spanish, that was his quote, saying, don't come. And he said, we tell them that month after month in our meetings, and they never do it. Um, it's obviously a very important part of immigration policy, the posture. And if you talk to migrants, they'll they'll look to Joe Biden and say, no es drastica como Trump. You know, he's, he's not the same mm -hmm. level of, uh, you, you, you can expect perhaps something almost like DACA, right, under a Joe mm -hmm. Biden administration. Migrants have agency, they know exactly what they're doing. Um, and so they, they do pick up on that kind of posturing and signaling. So it is an element of that. Um, but and I think that's the same thing that he was doing with saying, if you come from Venezuela or Cuba um, and you don't, you, you don't come in and apply for asylum, turn yourself in, you're not eligible for asylum. If you cross illegally, you're not eligible for asylum. It is part of a posture. But again, it's also to make those numbers look different. And they also have implemented this new policy that you can't cross other countries and get asylum, which to me seems entirely counterintuitive. Like if, if you're... Let's say you're in Guatemala yeah. and, you, and you're trying to get asylum in the United States. How do you do that? You can't go to the embassy. Like that's basic, that, basic, that path is basically shut off. Mm -hmm. the, the only way is to go through Mexico right. and then apply for asylum there. Unless, or, what do you, like, do you charter a private plane? And, yeah, that's right. Um, fly. And right. that's like really the only Go to option. Martha's Vineyard? And it, right. <laughs> and it has happened. I mean, there there are flights that you can get um, from A to B without actually paying to go through Mexico on a bus or by foot some part of the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a this patchwork policy that's the problem. Like, it's just completely inhumane to have such a patchwork policy that, again, when we're talking about, like, Cuban refugees, um, Venezuelan refugees, a lot of the Venezuelan migrants have lived in other countries for a long time before they're applying for asylum. I get it. It's the same thing with the Haitians. Um, but what you end up doing is just closing the door to people our asylum policy exists to help. The, the, and going back to the, the Jay Powell point about unemployment, there's an irony that there seem to be a lot of people who will say, Yes, we need to raise interest rates because we need a higher unemployment rate because inflation's out of control. Mm -hmm. We need to we need to get that down. But those same people will not say, "All right, well then, how about we bring in two million more workers?" Mm -hmm. Like when the effect yeah. when the effect, if you believe, I don't think it, I don't actually think it would have the effect on wages that people think it would because those workers produce economic activity, they increase GDP that and that that increased GDP then uh, results in you know, higher wages out of that more economic activity. But obviously, if you have, there's some level at which you get so much immigration, uh, so much competition for jobs that you would see wages come down. But it's curious, why, why are people okay with wages coming down because you've disciplined the American workforce and fired millions of people and you know, stoked fear uh, you know, in workplaces across the country, but they're deeply hostile to producing, uh, you know, more labor through immigration policy. Like what, like, uh, what's a, 
why are you okay with one but not another? It's a serious problem. I mean, it's, it's a huge problem. I and mean, it goes to even like what people refer to as high-skilled labor. When we talk about semiconductors here, one of the biggest problems is that who are you going to get to manage the semiconductor <laughs> like facility? Seriously, because uh, it takes our- three years to get somebody from India to get in. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And our so-called like best and brightest now all work for Meta. Right, like, like all of the people that could be doing this were funneled into Silicon Valley for years and years um, and are just working on making us worse people instead of making us more secure as a country and just to round out the block. I think that's probably why Susan Rice is on this issue. One thing, the media doesn't report a lot and believe me, I understand the terrorist, the terrorist watch list has plenty of its own problems, but there are dozens of people that crossed just last year that are on the terrorist watch list. There are reports every single month um, of people who we should be able to screen better. There's something like 51,000 known Godaways uh, last month uh, alone, some, somewhere around there, which is higher than about 50,000 from the previous January. These are huge numbers, and when you're seeing the people who we're actually able to uh, apprehend at the border, dozens of people on the terrorist watch list that were actually apprehended, your mind can sort of extend uh, how many people might be in this country uh, that we should at least be aware of them being in this country, let alone maybe have turned away from getting into this country. So it does make sense that Susan Rice is looking at the Biden policy and thinking, what the hell are we doing here as a kind of hawkish person? But in general, our immigration policy is just not serving anyone well. I would agree with that, except for the fact that it makes sense that Susan Rice is looking at any domestic policy. Yes. Like, what, is she, what is she doing in the yeah. domestic policy role? Uh, absurd from the beginning. Makes no sense. Let's move on to China, because I think this is a story that's playing out this week, getting not enough attention in the press. Uh, here's NPR. Chinese leader Xi Jinping name-checked the United States in remarks during the annual session of parliament underway in Beijing this week, saying it was leading Western countries in an effort to encircle and suppress China. This is a quote from Xi Jinping. Western countries led by the U.S. have implemented comprehensive containment, encirclement, and suppression against us, bringing unprecedented severe challenges to our country's development. Now, on Tuesday, the foreign minister also criticized the United States by name. Here's a quote from him. The U.S. claims it wants to compete to win with China and does not seek conflict, but in fact, the so-called competition by the U.S. is all-round containment and suppression, a zero-sum game of life and death. Why does the U.S. ask China not to provide weapons to Russia? Well, it keeps selling arms to Taiwan. One more quote to hit you with here. When the U.S. says it wants to install guardrails and have no conflict in China-U.S. relations, it really means that the U.S. requires China not to fight back when hit or scolded, but this cannot be done. Now, China, you have two high-ranking officials, including Xi Jinping himself, calling out the United States by name this week, by the way, as they continue to basically support Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, this is a really big development. The Wall Street Journal has a long, long story out this week probing whether America is prepared in any capacity for a potential battle over Taiwan and what that could escalate into between, in terms of a war between the United States and China, a hot war between the United States and China. So very, 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 very big deal that Xi Jinping himself called the United States out by name, including the and the foreign minister as well. I've been reading actually a bunch of Xi Jinping's speeches this week, actually really over the last couple of weeks. The fact that he used the name the mm -hmm. United States, um, obviously a lot of China observers picked up on that right away. Ryan, what do you make of it? The, the argument that the Chinese are making is that if that the U.S. says it has put up guardrails uh, around its kind of China confrontation that will prevent uh, a, a 
a cold war from developing into a hot war. And they're they're saying that no, they're, if you are barreling down the road out of control at this speed, mm -hmm. there are no amount of guardrails that are going to prevent an accident. And I do, and I do think that the United States, the people of the United States need to be deeply worried about that. Yeah. Like, and at the at the same time. Uh, we shouldn't forget that it, the Chinese government, you know, around 2007, you know, 2008, uh, in the in the wake of the financial crisis, you know, seeing the United States weakening, you know, really uh, it embarked aggressively on a policy, uh, an intentional policy of confronting the United States and under and under, and undermining uh, the United States in a in a significant way, you know, helping to you know our our politicians, you know, participated in in this eagerly. But uh, you know there was a there was an explicit kind of goal to hollow out uh, American manufacturing the, the middle class, and you know and I think that you you occasionally see people talk about fentanyl in this in this context, mm -hmm. uh, but you know a, a, an authoritarian country like like China, which is able to you know so uh, you know effectively kind of monitor social media. Uh, you know, keep, keep control of their economy isn't going to have a multi-billion-dollar fentanyl export industry operating without kind of the approval of the of the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party. Absolutely, they know right. exactly how much of those precursor chemicals are being shipped to Mexico. Right, they could, and you know, and, and you know, similarly to the United States having. You know, some awareness, some involvement that oh, the, our allies are the ones that are actually shipping this in. Well, it's important. It's important for our allies to have this funding source. So we're going to kind of look look the other way. Uh, on on the Chinese side, it's like well, this you know this is actually this is weakening our trade rival. Uh, it is, it's helping to hollow out a manufacturing base. It's it's really eviscerating, uh, you know, the, the, an entire generation of people. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> All of those things tied in, you know, make it make me, you know, look a little cynically at some of the the complaints, the crocodile tears uh, from from the Chinese there. Well, the flirting with Vladimir Putin makes me look at all of it very mm -hmm. cynically as well when we're talking about an actual invasion. Now, uh, what the Chinese see in that is a rebuke to NATO. It is a rebuke to the West. It is a rebuke to what they see as Western expansionism. And so obviously it makes sense that they come in and look at uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine as a sort of strength, a, a powerful rebuke, something that can genuinely very much weaken the West. I want to ask about reports um, which I've seen some interesting debate over that China may be considering supplying weapons mm -hmm. to Vladimir Putin. I've seen skepticism of those reports as basically saying this is unsubstantiated warmongering, and I'm entirely prepared to believe that's the case. It also wouldn't surprise me if it was true in some capacity as well. So all of this coming on the heels of that. I think is relevant too. Yeah, and what we can know for sure, thanks to the, the Chinese diplomats here, is that the U.S. is in fact pressuring China not to supply weapons to Russia, right. because the Chinese just complained right. that the U.S. is pressuring China not to supply weapons right. to Russia. So, how seriously China is actually considering doing that, I think, is an open question. I think it's clear that Russia has asked for that support. I think that that reporting is pretty solid. Uh, and all, it's also completely intuitive. Like the manufacturing base of the Russian economy with uh, under sanctions is able to create only so many missiles, only so many tanks, mm -hmm. you know, only, uh, only so much material for 
its invasion. So where it would stand to reason that they would go to China. And so China this week complaining that it's unfair. Like how come, you know, you know sounds like you know, seven-year-olds yeah. <laughs> like on both sides. Wait, how come, how come you get to fund Ukraine and you get to supply Ukraine with weapons, but we can't supply Russia with weapons? And there's actually no good answer mm -hmm. to that other than because we're the empire and we say so. Mm -hmm. No, and the, the Chinese economy is another thing to keep in mind here. Obviously, not where Xi Jinping would want it to be at this moment post-COVID. Um, but I would say when you look at the Wall Street Journal reporter, reporting and other reporting that we've covered here for a long time, one thing that worries me is this is coming. This could be coming faster than people realize. And I'm not talking about, you know, at the nuclear scale, just some level of conflict over Taiwan which could get, uh, which could escalate very quickly in the same sense that we are now dealing with those concerns uh, in Ukraine. Any hot confrontation over Taiwan, obviously you have the same type of risk and that could be coming more quickly than people realize specifically because China understands we have a, a limited time frame or they have a limited time frame before we are able to rebuild our defense capacity to meet um, some of what would be needed in a amphibious sort of amphibious situation, hot war situation over those islands um, in the, the South China Sea over Taiwan. That's a, a huge, huge, huge concern. They know that that narrows every single month that they uh, have in front of them because the more that we're resupplying ourselves, some of these weapons that have actually gone to Ukraine that would be useful in a hot confrontation over Taiwan, uh, the semiconductors that we're able to reshore, again, that can happen in about three years is the estimate, and it started about six months ago. So these are things that genuinely keep me up at night. And w one amendment to what I said earlier, you actually, you, you could, you can make a, a plausible argument for why it's okay to fund, obviously, the defense of Ukraine versus the offense of Russia, because Russia invaded Ukraine, Ukraine did not invade Russia. But from the Chinese perspective, and I think this is what's important, they don't see in any circumstance the United States acting as just uh, merely, you know, uh, defensive, in a, merely a defensive posture. Yeah. Like, they see U.S., offensive presence all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so every action that they see the United States taking, they see as, as a projection of American power, not a uh, defense of just ideals of, of liberty and democracy. Well, yeah, and it's uh, this is world history in perpetuity for the future, by the way, because it's what happens in high-tech nuclear order. Um, no matter what, you're going to continue trying to like untangle um, and get to the bottom of who started what. But Belt and Road is like a euphemism for Chinese expansionism, um, and euphemism. I say that it's just the the language itself, but the policy. Uh, it's a friendly face for exactly. And again, when you read speeches from Xi Jinping, it's very clear how they see Chinese expansionism, uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, uh, sort of undermining the West, not just, they talk about mankind and humankind a lot, not just um, undermining the United States, but uh, spreading uh, outside just China. And so uh, when you have nuclear technology, everybody shares a border. The great powers share a border. If you have a nuke, you share a border with every single other country in the world. So we will, if it feels like echoes of the Cold War, as people say over and over again, um, yes, but that's only because because we are 100 years into nuclear history. Human history looks like this. Nuclear technology <laughs> changes and it's just a straight line up and we are in the very early stages of that era. So it's these echoes of the Cold War, get used to it. Yeah, and I, I wish Belt and Road was the way that the US would express its power instead of just blowing up belts and roads. Like we, and we, it, we showed it worked with the Marshall Plan. Well, you like mean that was one of our most effective 
kind of dip, diplomatic forays of the entire second half of the 20th century, rebuilding Europe. And then we pivoted to, we're going we're gonna to break unions, we're going to break social democracies, we're going to keep wages low so that our corporations continue can continue funneling you know, cheap goods into the country so that we can then you know, suppress our own kind of discontent within the country by you know, making sure that the price of TVs continues to go down. I mean, Belt and Road there is debt-trap diplomacy based. We talked about the World Bank last yeah. week. I mean, it's it's debt-trap diplomacy that is used to blackmail developing countries. Right. Not great. Too. Better than death squad diplomacy <laughs> is, what, is what I would argue. Uh, <laughs> you got to have one form or the other. Right. Maybe <laughs> well, now in local news, we're going to be talking about the D.C. crime bill that's yeah. grabbed national headlines for interesting reasons because the District of Columbia, where we are right now, is a federal district, is the federal district that is entrenched in the Constitution. Ryan and I almost certainly disagree, although I don't know that we've ever talked about this before, over the question of home rule and D.C. statehood. But the bill itself grabbed a lot of headlines because Republicans in Congress latched onto it after it looked as though, and this is where I take issue with some of the media coverage, including from DCist, which had a pretty good write-up of it, WAMU DCist, um, that said the bill got scuttled by Republican backlash. Well, Muriel Bowser did not want to sign this bill. Joe Biden himself tweeted that while he supports home rule and D.C. statehood, I have the exact quote right here, um, while he supposed, supports home rule and D.C. statehood, he was also, um, yeah, here he said, I support D.C. statehood and home rule, but I don't support some of the changes D.C. Council put forward over the mayor's objections, such as lowering penalties for carjackings. If the Senate votes to overturn what D.C. Council did, I'll sign it. The carjacking provision of this very complicated bill that, over, that attempts to make some modifications to a 1901 criminal code. By the way, that's before people had cars <laughs> to jack. Um, and the, Biden probably think it's, it's a car, Jack. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> it's totally been massaged. Uh, like any nuance has been out the window in this national conversation. Uh, Ryan, you have a good point to make, though, about the maximum penalty for carjackings being changed. Oh, yeah, and maybe we have that that element here. But what's 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 amazing is the the way that uh, this reduction in maximum penalties from what forty years to something like twenty four years mm -hmm. is getting talked about as this uh, re this lowering of penalties. Yes, uh, like technically, it's a it's a lowering of penalties as if it's going to spur some like soft on crime explosion of carjackings around Washington, D.C. Something like 99% of the sentences that are doled out for carjacking now are significantly under what is the maximum. Like the current maximum allows, I think, for like 40 years for an armed carjacking. Mm -hmm. And so they, they lowered that to like 20-something. Yeah. Uh, the, the mandatory minimums for carjackings in, in D.C. currently, and even in the new criminal code, if it were enacted, would still be higher. And we, we're pointing this out then in, say, Tennessee, where Bill Haggerty uh, is leading the charge against this thing. The ten Tennessee's law is more liberal when yeah. it comes to carjackings and armed carjackings. <laughs> more, more liberal, more liberal. Even though it's basically just a normal penalty. Yeah, it's a gigantic mandatory minimum that, mm -hmm. like, set 60 years ago, people would be like, you're going to... That's insane. Like, how on earth are you going to put people in prison for that long? Now we just we're like, oh, 15 years for this? Yeah, you're going to do you're going to do 15 years for this. So they they're barely loosening the penalties, and it's in in a rewrite of an entire code. And to have Joe Biden say, I support a thing in principle, but not when it might cause me some short term political cost, <laughs> may, potential political cost, because and. He may now have brought more cost on himself because now everything that D.C. Council does, reporters are going to get to say, hey, Joe Biden, 
Uh, what do you think of this? Because there, there's a D.C. Council uh, provision that is allowing non-U.S. citizens, would allow non-U.S. citizens to vote in local elections. To me, I think if you are subject to the laws of a, an area where you live, then principle says you should have some say, no matter what. Even if you're in prison, you should have some say over what those laws are. And, but you, you can disagree with that, but now all of a sudden, uh, that, that's gonna be something Joe Biden's gonna have to, he's gonna have to answer for everything that the DC Council does. Yesterday I heard reporters on Capitol Hill asking Republican senators, what do you think of allowing non-citizens to vote? And me, a DC resident, I'm thinking, oh really, that's interesting. How about citizens who can't actually vote <laughs> for senators or members of the House of Representatives? All of a sudden, you're, you know, you're so concerned about the right to vote, and they're like, and they're, and they're shaking their head, like, yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't approve of this. It's like, we shouldn't have to ask you. Like, it's one thing that we don't get to vote, you know, for House, uh, for Senate. Uh, they have a workaround so that we can vote for president. But then you're going to come in and you're going to kind of line edit our criminal code and, and say, actually, 24 years for carjacking, I think it should be 40. Like, <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> okay, so we are, get, we are yeah. hitting on where we disagree with this because here's, a National Review article actually cited um, a Madison quote from Federalist 43. Now I sound like a real loser. Um, he says, the indispensable ne necessity of complete authority at the seat of government carries its own evidence with it. Without it, not only the public authority might be insulted and its proceedings interrupted with impunity, but a dependence of the members of the general government on the state comprehending the seat of government for protection in the exercise of their duty might bring on the national councils an imputation of awe or influence equally dishonorable to the government and dissatisfactory to the other members. Uh, so I would just say uh, of the Confederacy, because this is in the era of the Federalist Papers, so I, I, mean, I, I think there's we could have a whole debate one day about home rule and D.C. statehood, um, but I do think the federal city is, should be subject to federal rule and uh, by a wide scope, and this is in the broader context, and I think to your point, actually, um, about why this is such a ridiculous thing for Bill Haggerty from Tennessee to be swooping in and, like, line-item vetoing mm -hmm. uh, D.C. City, so city Council crime overhauls is that it is obvious if you walk around the District of, the Col of Columbia post-pandemic that there's a lot of recovery that needs to happen. It is obvious that we are dealing with particular crime surges, not across the board. Actually, violent crime did decrease from 2021 to 2022. Um, according to Axios, though, for the second year in a row, D.C. exceeded 200 murders in 2022, and some crimes did we see... We have that chart. Yeah, we also yeah. have a chart, um, but th that's where we are so far in 2023 here in the district. So in 2022, robberies were up 2%, car thefts were up, were up 8%, like in a lot of cities, and carjackings were up 14%. If you look at the chart that's on the screen right now, you can see, for instance, between 2022 to 2023, the same day in March, March 7th, uh, we are from 29 to 39 homicides. That's a 34% increase three months into the year, 120% increase in sex abuse, um, theft in general, um, we're up to, I, I can't read the number on the screen, but it is up, um, it looks like 18%, uh, car theft from auto, uh, 22%. Two of those were mine. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Leave Ryan alone. Yes. Uh, motor vehicle theft up 110%. So again, these are early numbers, but it's obvious to everybody why there is no appetite, even from the Washington Post, which uh, editorialized that the bill would make D.C., quote, a more dangerous city by decreasing, quote, punishments for violent crimes such as carjackings, home invasion burglaries, robberies, and even homicides, and tying, quote, the hands of police and prosecutors while overwhelming courts. That's other stuff in this bill. It's a very big bill um, that can be debated as what this would do to 
through the court system. There are arguments, I think serious arguments, that it would overwhelm the court system because of changes there. Um, and so when you even have the Washington Post, Muriel Bowser uh, coming out against a bill like this, I do think it signals, despite this weird conversation about carjackings we've had, and especially when Republicans insert themselves, national Republicans, into this local conversation, there's just no appetite in so many big cities right now for criminal justice reform, even if some of it, by the way, would reduce crime um, and would make cities safer. Nobody wants to talk about it, period, because there's um, you know, our, our cities do feel dirtier to a lot of people. They feel less safer to a lot of people. Um, and I think national Democrats have a lot to answer for, not just in terms of the criminal code, but really just in terms of the way they govern these cities. And, I, you know, a significant bump in the, in the crime wave came out of, you know, the pandemic, people frustrated, uh, fewer people on the street allowing people to commit more crimes of op opportunity. But also and, arguably undercutting of police, uh, both with rhetoric and legally. Well, under, <laughs> undercutting of police. Police having their feelings hurt and deciding not that they're, that they're not going to do their job anymore, I think, is a, is a serious thing. And it, or having it, their it, power curtailed. In, in neighborhoods, by the way, where black residents said they wanted more police and l not less police, as the national movement pushed a lot of um, you know, people in places like San Francisco, even London Breed walked back some of those policies. I don't think there's necessarily been any evidence yet that Places that did criminal justice reform uh, or, or, and police reform have had uh, different crime increases than places that didn't. So, if, like, if you look at, you know, if you look at like red states around the country, mm -hmm. you see the mm -hmm. same crime bump even in places that never had, you know, never got much police reform mm -hmm. traction. Uh, what you what you did see is it did see a slowdown in call response and like Baltimore being like the most egregious response where they were like, cool, no, you don't like the way we do our jobs. Uh, how about we just don't do our jobs at all? Or a lot of uh, police departments are now severely hampered because nobody wants to work in them uh, given how demonized they feel. Yeah. No, that recruiting is big as right. Recruiting for any job anywhere has become a problem and, and it's acute within the, within the police force. But yeah. Now, Ryan, I'm excited for this next block because this is a, a Ryan Grimm question <laughs> in the White House press briefing to Karine Jean-Pierre, a, a question that I don't think anybody else, or a topic I don't think anybody else has asked about so far. You want to tee up this yeah, clip? Yeah, and you can see why based on her answer. So yeah, this is from, the, <laughs> this, is from this week in the, in the press briefing. You might uh, recognize this, this voice. <laughs> Last week, the Department of Justice acknowledged that in 2020, they had used, uh, the FBI had used 702 authorities to illegally spy on a member of Congress. Can you tell us who that member of Congress was? Has that member of Congress been briefed by the White House? I would refer you to Department of Justice, just not going to speak to that from here. Go ahead. Thanks. And then she so effectively calls on the next person. Right away. And, and then the next person has a question, so you, there's no room for a follow-up. It was very smooth. Yeah, yeah, she's like, eh, I'm not going to answer that question. You go ahead. Ask a you please ask a different one. And I, I feel like the White House press corps needs just so much better coordination <laughs> and willingness to kind of work collectively that, and you, you see this, you, you see this occasionally from the White House uh, press corps. Uh, you'll see it on the Hill uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. And you'll see it with uh, foreign press corps where you, you the, a, a reporter asks a question, the person... Uh, that they're asking the question to, refuses to answer it. And then the next reporter, rather than the question that they had scripted, ready for you know the German chancellor or whatever, they will go back and they'll say, I would actually like first to ask you to answer that last question. Mm -hmm. You didn't answer that question. Yep. Because you know if nobody can 
get a follow-up in, then all somebody has to do to dodge a question is just dodge the question once and they move on. And then there becomes a political cost to not answering the question like eight times. And the press corps knows how to do this. If you remember a year ago uh, when uh, the the war drums were being beaten for, for fighter jets to be sent to Ukraine, when... Uh, when the press, when the White House press secretary said, "No, we're not, we're not going to do that," then the next person would be like, "So you said you're not going to send fighter jets over to Ukraine? How about sending fighter jets? What do you, what do you think about <laughs> doing that?" Or like, I'm going to give time for my colleague to beat the yes. war drums. <laughs> yes. What if, what if Estonia asked to send war drums? That was one of the. That was one of the. They were looking for every single way to ask a follow up, and while the substance of that I thought was was deeply disturbing, mm-hmm. the the cohesion of it was impressive. It was like, it was getting the press corps to really push the administration on a question uh, that that they were actually happy to answer. Like she kept giving an answer. Of course. It just wasn't the answer that they wanted. In, in this case, she's just not answering. And I didn't ask uh, if the Department of Justice had, had uh, briefed Congress. I asked if the White House yeah. has briefed Congress. And I asked if she would tell us who the White House spied on. And this could be a situation where she just throws the Trump administration under the bus because, like, this was 2020. Mm-hmm. This was the FBI under uh, under the Trump administration. Uh, but maybe it was uh, a Democrat, uh, and, and you know, maybe it was a Democrat that was illegally spied on. Yeah. And you could then kind of spin something up about that. But then you might not want to necessarily talk about it. Like so, the the speculation out there, there all we all we can do is guess. But we know that kind of Eric Swalwell was in the news around that time for some liaison with the <laughs> woman who turned out to be perhaps connected to Chinese intelligence. Uh, and so it was it that, but we don't know. That's absolutely pure speculation. We do know, uh, based on uh, wired reporting that's based on an uh, in- internal audit uh, of FBI 702 practices, that they did spy on some unnamed member of Congress. We don't know the party, we don't know the name. White House is declining to say who. If they or why. felt confident in their substantiation, I think they would say it. Um, because especially if it was a Republican and they felt confident in their substantiation, I think that uh, they know the Democratic base at this point isn't going to be upset about se- exercising 702 power to. And we saw this over the course You're of the Russian collusion. You got nothing to worry about. Yeah. yeah. Well, how much criticism did you know Carter Page get? Um, on, on MSNBC and CNN, Washington Post, New York Times for like years um, until they stopped talking about it, basically. But I, I mean, if they felt confident in their substantiation. But I think you're you're touching on a really important point here, which is there is no cohesion on this question. And this is why I still like that the press briefings are televised, even though it feels like theater. I still like that they're televised, specifically because they show where the priorities of the White House press corps are. And you get answers to questions like this one. Every once in a while, someone asks a really good question that the White House just doesn't want to answer. And you see, not only does she say the White House doesn't have a comment on that, she says, I'm going to refer you to the DOJ when you didn't ask about the DOJ, you asked about the White House. And there's a reason nobody else in the press corps wants to talk about 702 powers. It's because either they don't care or they love that 702 powers exist because everybody that they talk to in the intelligence community is tripping in their ear about all of these false stories on how the country was saved from destruction by 702. And that is, I think, uh, very much worth televising these briefings. I love that we get to reflect on that when Ryan goes and asks a damn good question about 702 that nobody else wants to talk about. I did reach out to the Department of Justice and said, hey, Corrine says you should answer this question. And what did they say? Nothing yet. I'll report back when I, <laughs> when I, when I, when I get something out of that.
turning uh, to the House of Representatives. Actually, while while we were uh, while we're producing this show, very strange development in in the world of kind of cross ideological coalitions. Matt Gates uh, shared my <laughs> intercept story this oh, really? morning uh, on Twitter, uh, basically, and he he said. Uh, he says, contact your representative today and ask them to support my legislation to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria voting today with a link to an article that I have up uh, in The Intercept today, which is uh, responsible statecraft uh, wrote about this uh, Matt, Matt Gates effort recently. Uh, so essentially, there are there are still almost roughly 900 uh, American troops uh, helping to occupy central Syria mm. along with a, a an uh, unknown number of contractors and other other kind of associated allies in in the area backing up the Syrian defense forces mostly mostly Kurdish uh, element of what uh, is is what remains kind of of the opposition that isn't ISIS uh, yesterday evening uh, as I as I reported the Congressional Progressive Caucus sent out a note to its membership urging a yes vote and noting that this that his legislation is similar uh, to uh, legislation that had been put forward on the NDAA uh, by uh, by Jamal Bowman previously, which had set a one-year timeline. Uh, I also reported that uh, Am- Ambassador Robert Ford, uh, who was the Obama administration's am- ambassador to Syria and who had previously been a, a staunch advocate of more and more kind of U.S. intervention in the area, more support for the opposition, you know, in an attempt to get uh, Assad to the negotiating table that would uh, lead, they would hope, to Assad stepping down. So one, so one of the, and he eventually resigned in 2014 because he felt like the Obama administration wasn't being aggressive enough to accomplish it goal, its goals. He's now supporting this Gates measure. And I interviewed him yesterday. I said, sounds like what you're basically saying is go big or go home. <laughs> and if you're not going big, you might as well go home. And he said, yes. He said, except I would add that you have to remember that going big is no guarantee of success either. If you look at the Iraq war, we went pretty big. And what he, we got what he called mixed results. Uh, so the vote is going to be held uh, this, this evening. When this came to the floor under uh, Jamal Bowman, 60% of the Democratic caucus voted for it. It'll be interesting to see if they pick some up because the CPC is officially calling for them to vote for it or if they lose some because it's associated with Gates and that Biden is in the White House, although Biden was in the White House for the last one. Uh, but I'm also curious on the Republican side. There were 25 Republicans last time, 21 the first time in 2021, then 25 in 2022 uh, who who voted to uh, end the uh, occupation of Syria. Do you think Gates gets more than 25 or is he so toxic in the in the Republican Party that it's that he's not gonna be able to pull that off. What what's your sense of how effective he'll be at doing kind of his part of this? Yeah, I think you get at some of that in your reporting, which is <laughs> it's just a, the process, even itself, um, on how Matt Gates cobbled together the legislation and then uh, was able to work with Ilhan Omar and cobbling together some coalition, some support. Um, right, yeah. his, right. His first version of this a couple weeks ago. Uh, allowed 15 days 15 for, for all troops to get days. out, which, you know, just you're, isn't going to happen because no nobody's going to support that. And he immediately jumped to six months, right? For- well, and, oh, and interestingly, yeah, Ilhan Omar worked directly with him. Right. Uh, and said, look, you got it. These are rookie numbers, man. <laughs> 
but you got to bump these numbers up. And he's like, okay, fine. Well, let's 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 do it to six months. Because she's like, you're just not you're not going to get any democratic support for this. So yeah. what would what's the point of doing this? Yeah. You're gonna you you're able to get a floor vote. Like why blow it on something that everybody's just going to vote against? And so they so they came up with this six month threshold. So does that signal that Matt Gates thinks there's no chance um, of getting significant support either from Republicans or centrist Democrats? So you might as well just put the 15 days in. Um, or does it signal that someone on his policy team just and and he just did something really dumb with the timeline? The question, the jury is still out on that question. Uh, but I would actually predict a slight increase in that number. I think that would probably tick up from 25, especially amidst problems in Europe, amidst problems in the South China Sea. I think you know there's a real, even among people who are more hawkish in the Republican Party, there's a real concern that we're expending uh, military power in places that are draining military power um, that should be reprioritized uh, in, in places that should be reprioritized. So I actually would would predict I you know it's not a like solid prediction. I don't have any like particular intelligence right now on this, but I would expect that number to be higher. All right. Well, that that'll be nice to see. It's unlikely to get to 218. Yeah, I don't that, think so. At this point, but uh, you know, a, a a serious show of force. I think at least puts pressure, and I, and uh, Mark Milley was just there. Uh, th- I don't think that's a coincidence at all. You know, he he went. That's you know, the first time he's been there in a very long time, and I think it was he was there to kind of, you know, show confidence in the U.S. presence there, which also we should note is illegal. <laughs> like so, there was, and I, it's it's crazy. I covered the vote in or the 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 whipping of, or the vote in 2013 uh, around this this precise issue. It's 10 years ago. I've been doing this for too long. (laughs) And uh, Obama eventually pulled it off the floor after our whip count showed 243 no's and leaning no's. So he was going to lose the vote. He wasn't going to get authorization for this use of force. HuffPost's whip count? Yeah, HuffPost. And even like Daily Coast was doing its own kind of separate whip count count, uh, back in in the days when there was a little bit more, you know, skeptical of U.S. interventions. Um, And so, uh, so, there is not that authority, so therefore they're relying on the 2001 AUMF, the Authorization of the Use of Military Force, which allows uh, the U.S. to go to war anywhere at once as long as it's against al-Qaeda, and there's, the Taliban was thrown in there as well. Uh, and they've since said, okay, well, al-Qaeda, anybody kind of similar to al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was hiding you know, under the Nord Stream pipeline. Yeah, right, yes. Well, that was a pro-Ukrainian group. <laughs> uh, and so uh, the... the but the the administration in the press has been saying that the purpose of this deployment of troops overseas is to counter Iran and, and pro-Iranian militias in Syria. And there's just... Now, if, if you were going to say, well, they're there to fight ISIS only, uh, then you could maybe say, okay, well, ISIS is derivative enough of al-Qaeda that, you know, you're not going to win a court case over this. But there's just no interpretation of the 2001 AUMF that authorizes a president to go to war against Iran or pro-Iran militias. Mm-hmm. Like, that's mm-hmm. just, you just can't do that. And so then the question is, does that matter? No, and clearly it, it doesn't. What about the rules-based order? It clearly <laughs> does not matter to the people who lecture us constantly <laughs> yes. about the rules-based, rules-based order, order and lecture other countries about the rules-based order. I know, we're suckers to even take it seriously, but, yeah. Why not? What are we supposed to do? Just for the hell of it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Pretend the, the rules-based yeah. order matters. 
What's your point today? All right. Well, we're going to be talking about Tucker Carlson and new Fox News reporting. Before Tucker started releasing new footage from the Capitol on January 6th, just this Monday, he actually prefaced his show with an interesting admission. As he covers the video this week, Carlson said, many mystery mysteries will remain unsolved. And in fact, there were many examples of behavior we saw in those tapes that didn't seem to make sense. Men in civilian clothes holding doors open for protesters, escorting others through the Capitol, etc. We would love to know who these people were. But as of tonight, we don't know. And because we don't know, we're not going to put their faces on the screen and suggest they were federal agents. So video of men in civilian clothing holding doors open for protesters and escorting others to the Capitol should have been explained by the special committee House Democrats impaneled to investigate January 6th. In new video, for instance, Carlson showed nearly 10 officers calmly escorting the so-called QAnon shaman around the Capitol building on January 6th. Maybe this was a crowd control technique. I actually have no idea, but I was there as a reporter, and right away it was clear to me that different parts of the building were experiencing very different versions versions of events. To be clear, I think the bottom line about January 6th is that a group of Trump supporters, not Antifa or the FBI, were so persuaded by the former president and so furious at the political establishment that they gave in to mob mentality and violence, thinking it was their last chance to save the country. You could feel it snowballing. But that doesn't mean the FBI didn't have informants involved. We now know definitively they did. And it doesn't mean the media's coverage was true. We now know definitively it wasn't. For instance, here are some questions the media should be wondering. Why does Tucker have video the January 6th committee seems to have contradicted, even though they had it in their possession? Why did attorneys for the January 6th defendants, as one said on Laura Ingram's show last night, not get that video? And why is the media more upset? And why are some establishment Republicans, from Tom Tillis to Kevin Craig, to Mitch McConnell, who trotted out a prop yesterday, why are they more upset with Tucker Carlson than with the January 6th committee or with the media that just completely swallowed the January 6th committee's narrative whole cloth? So to pivot just slightly here, hundreds of pages of new documents in the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News dropped yesterday, and there is surely plenty to dive into over the coming days. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, as I just mentioned, Republican senators from Tillis to Kramer to McConnell have been whining about Tucker Carlson's coverage of the January 6th tapes. Chuck Schumer actually called on Rupert Murdoch to yank Tucker Carlson off the air recently. You can see this tweet from Republican Senator J.D. Vance, who said, today I was asked by multiple Republicans reporters about Tucker's show last night. I was asked zero times about one of the most powerful figures in government actively promoting corporate censorship. J.D. said censorship, but you can add the word corporate censorship of a media figure. figure. The assault on, quote, our democracy is this. Again, he's asking questions about where Republican senators from Mitch McConnell to Kevin Kramer to Tom Tillis and Mitt Romney are placing, placing their priorities. And that is a useful question to apply to the media as well. And here's where it's useful to think about the balance overall in American media. Every single corporate media institution regularly attacks Fox News, sometimes with reason, but other times without it. 
Plus, nearly every single reporter now feasting on these Dominion documents has helped spread destructive false narratives in recent years, and many of them have done it while deceiving their audience by pretending to be neutral and apolitical. So you don't have to shed any tears for Fox News to recognize that while the network is powerful, the combined powers of their enemies is beyond Rupert Murdoch's wildest imagination. And those enemies are much more powerful and much more guilty because they feign superiority. So let's pivot for a minute again and enjoy this delightful clip of Russell Brand calmly making NBC analyst John Heilman look foolish from last Friday's edition of Real Time. John, I've not known you long, but mm. I love you already. But I have to say that it's, <laughs> it's disingenuous to claim that the biases that are exhibited on Fox News are any different from the biases exhibited on MSNBC. It's difficult to suggest that's, that's... that these corporations operate as anything other than mouthpieces for their affiliate owners in BlackRock and Vanguard. And, and unless we start to embrace... And, and also, mate, like, just spiritually, if I may use that word in your great country, we have to take responsibility <laughs> for our own perspective. Right. I've been on that MSNBC, yeah. mate. It was right. propagandist nutcrackery yeah. you're, you're on there. Having, you, I went on the show called Morning Joe. Yeah. It was absurd the way they carried <laughs> Good on. Good morning, Joe. Yes. Yeah, it, I don't it. know what it was. It wasn't morning. There was no one called Joe there. No one could concentrate. They didn't understand the basic tenets of journalism. No one was willing to stick up for genuine American heroes uh, like Edward Snowden. No one was willing to talk about Julian Assange and what he suffered trying to bring real journalism to the American. American people, and I think to sit within the castle of MSNBC throwing rocks oh. at Fox News is ludicrous. My friends, Make my MSNBC friend. better. My friend, my Make friend, MSNBC great friend, again. Make MSNBC great again. Make the entire media great again, maybe. Brian's point came amid a discussion on the show of recent legal disclosures that are showing certain hosts and executives at Fox News were unhappy with other people at the network's coverage of genuine disinformation about the 2020 election. Since I've uh, written this script that I'm reading now, we're getting even more from the Dominion documents. But as he was being criticized for misrepresenting facts, John Heilman then misrepresented the facts about the Fox law. Suit, but that's neither here than there. My only my only quibble with Brand's point is that Fox News recognizes there's money to be made by being the only corporate media outlet willing to air anti-establishment voices. Unlike on MSNBC or CNN these days, on Fox News, you will actually hear Glenn Greenwald and Tulsi Gabbard's perspectives. You'll hear absolutely forbidden critiques of the left's excesses like censorship and puberty blockers and neo-racism. These are close to the closer to the perspectives you'd hear in a bar in my Wisconsin hometown than anything on MSNBC or CNN, where questioning the dogma of rich, educated liberals is uncouth and bigoted and intolerable. Again, I'm sure Rupert Murdoch understands this fundamentally as a business strategy, not an altruistic one. Still, over on MSNBC and CNN and in the pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post and even Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal, it's rare to hear serious critiques of the military-industrial complex or corporate power unless those critiques are about the military being racist or corporations needing bigger HR departments. Fox platforms warmongers too, that's sure, that's true, but they know it's more entertaining then to air other perspectives alongside of them. So while corporate media whines about Kevin McCarthy granting Tucker Carlson access to the January 6th tapes, it's possible to question the decision, but recognize that corporate media itself is the problem. That Tucker seeing the J6 footage after a purportedly bipartisan select committee left relevant 
relevant video out of their hearings and reports and that media never questioned them. If you're talking about Fox and Tucker and not talking about the broader universe of other networks and journalists who've made a habit of lying and deceiving for partisan purposes, you're getting sucked into a stupid game. Just like all those Republican senators now choosing to waste breath on Tucker, they would never use to critique the entire corporate press and intelligence community for exploiting the tragedy. Ryan, again, there's a lot coming out of the Dominion lawsuit. All right, well, thank you for joining us. As you may have noticed if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, we're doing something different, posting just a couple of the clips. Uh, you can find the rest of them, uh, as you know, on the podcast version. Also on the premium version, you know, you get a part with 10, 10 of your dollars every month to hear that, but then you get it ad-free. That's right. And you get it emailed uh, into your inbox an hour early. Um, I don't know. It's been a good show, though. Another typical Wednesday, meaning we are bursting at the seams with breaking news. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. All right. Well, we will see you guys next Wednesday. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.